Welcome to episode 98 of the Infectious Historians podcast. I'm Merle. And I'm Lee. It's September 9th, 2022. And in today's episode, we're going to return to a discussion we had earlier in the pandemic about vaccines, vaccinations, and anti-vaccination movements. Our guest today is Paula Larson, who just defended her PhD from the University of Oxford under the title, A History of Canadian Vaccination Policy from 1885 to 1965. So first of all, I should say congrats. Thank you very much. On the quote-unquote formal academic side of things, she's published work in the journal Science and Public Policy on the post-normal challenges of COVID-19 and actually contributed to policy advisory statements for the United Kingdom government as well, which is quite important and I must say quite impressive. I think that was one of the most interesting aspects of being a historian working on vaccines during the middle of a pandemic is suddenly how many people wanted to listen to what you're saying. Hopefully we can get to that later on in the actual interview. But before we get there, I will also say that Paula has written a number of public-facing articles on her research topic, including anti-vaccination arguments, anti-Asian racism and disease, the polio vaccine heist of 1959, which I particularly liked, and racism and anti-vaccination movements in both the past and the present. Paula also has her own podcast called Research on the Rocks, which is a discussion of PhD research at Oxford, discussed over fun cocktails. And finally, she runs Uncomfortable Oxford, which is a public engagement project that aims at increasing public engagement with, quote-unquote, uncomfortable aspects of Oxford's past. The project runs walking tours, public lectures, and other events that address legacies of imperialism, colonialism, and inequality in the city and the university. So welcome to the podcast, Paula. Thank you so much for inviting me on. I'm very excited to be here today. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for joining us. So Merle, I mean, as a framing for this episode, I'm, I'm looking forward to returning to anti-vaccination as a topic on this podcast, especially looking back at it now after, what, two and a half years of COVID and how things changed over time, which I hope we'll do in the conversation. And more broadly, I also hope that we'll be able to reflect a bit about the implications of anti-vaccination ideas, movement, and practices. And I'm particularly interested in the recurrence of anti-vaccination, which personally, the best example I can think of is still the false connection between vaccines and autism, which was big in the past and comes back every few years since that's apparently an attractive story maybe reflect a bit about you know, the processes within the late 20th and early 21st, let's say, developed or richer societies that give rise or maintain these stories for that long. Yeah, I think that's a good way to frame it, Lee. And if you recall, about two years ago now, almost to the date, which is kind of nuts, we had a series of episodes on vaccines and anti-vaccination ideas actually right before vaccines were about to be rolled out. I think you called those mini arcs back at the time. Yeah, we did have mini arc episodes. Like, do you miss those? You're probably crying inside. Actually, I think you used to complain when I suggested this. I'll just say that some of the mini arcs were pretty creative in the way you framed them. You're just jealous you didn't think of the term. But in any case, we were curious then at the time what past reactions were and how this all might look going forward, for lack of a better term. And I personally wanted to return to the topic now because at least in the US, we're at the point where, to an extent, vaccine uptake is where it is, to an extent. And everyone who is eligible, kind of regardless of age, as of June, can get a vaccine if they want them. And this has obviously not been done, especially as you know, Lee, we have small children and there's been quite a lot less vaccine uptake in small children on the one hand. And on the other hand, the U.S. actually just rolled out new vaccines this past week that are tailored toward the various variants. And at the same time this is happening, places are starting to actually drop their vaccine mandates. And obviously mask mandates are also largely gone. So it'll be interesting to see where this all goes. And I thought it'd be a good time to reflect upon vaccines as well, because the Biden administration, at least in the U.S., is now suggesting that COVID vaccines will be annual vaccines just like the flu. So you get one in each arm, as I think some member of the administration called it recently. But before we get to all of that, Lee, how were your conferences? I think you went to Switzerland and Italy. 
And are you also excited about having childcare again? Yeah. So I went to Venice first and then Switzerland, Southern Switzerland. Both were fine. It was great to see people again, see some some friends, which I haven't seen in quite some time. I will say that with regards to COVID, I mean, it felt like, again, COVID didn't really exist. Flying around, the vast majority of people on both airplanes were not masked. Public transportation in Italy was somewhat better. Public transportation in Switzerland, the vast majority of people were not masked either. Yeah, I mean, I'm back here and healthy. As you said, daycare started for us a week ago. And at this moment, both myself, my wife, and my daughter are all sick. I mean, not like seriously sick, but we did catch like a minor cold from the children. I'm going to ask the question I always ask when you get sickly and you're going to give me the answer you always give me. Did you get a test? (laughs) No, this is very clearly a cold. And just like running noses and stuff. Yeah. Still get tested, Lee. It's the safe and reliable thing to do. I still have many, many boxes in my closet and we test whenever we get sick. How many tests do you have? I'd say we have at least 10 boxes of two test seats. So we basically always have, I would say, 20 or so tests on hand. Yeah. Okay. Just saying. Yeah, yeah. But what about you, Merle? How was your first academic year? On, on the tenure track, are you living the, the academic dream of many of us? <laughs> yeah, lots of stories so far and getting used to the university. This is a big football school here at Oklahoma State. And so I had to cancel one of my classes because there was a football game in the evening. And then in the other morning class, about half my class didn't actually show up to the class. Well, you always have to keep your priorities, right? Yeah, that's true. Priorities do matter here. I will say on a very positive note, I forgot how much I actually do love teaching. So I've really enjoyed being in the classroom, lecturing and doing kind of group activities and group work. I mean, you know, for your information, Lee, if you want to borrow my personal style, it's not that different from podcasts. So lots of very bad jokes, lots of making fun of things, calling out students for doing not bad things, but funny things or looking on websites, for example, when I tell them explicitly on a task, don't Google this thing first. So calling them out when they do that and using it as a learning lesson. And I was very impressed that one of them said my syllabus was just lots and lots of dad jokes. And so I had to remind them that in fact, I am a dad and show them a picture of my kids. I mean, just so you know, Merle, at this point, I think you could probably be their dad. I'll just leave it there. Yeah, we'll leave it there. I've also instituted, Lee, what you know from both of our teacher and colleague, Jack Tanus, the mandatory office hours. So now they all have to come to my office hours to talk with me, which both freaks them out, but I think also helps them quite a bit. No, it's good. I've been doing this for three years so far. I mean, I haven't met one person who didn't think this was a really good idea. So yeah, thanks to Jack Tanus. Yep. Shout out to Jack. Now, hopefully the one thing I can say, Lee, is if you recall, Jack lost his voice and got a vocal node. So that's my goal is not to destroy my voice. But in any case, we'll stop regaling listeners with our random thoughts on teaching and office hours. How are you, Paula? Where are you? And how are things doing around you? Yeah, I'm quite good. I'm usually uh, in England, of course, at Oxford, but the term doesn't start there for another few weeks. So right now I'm actually in the United States, I just came down from Canada to visit my partner. This is where he lives. But I have to say, even on my way down, it was interesting to see the way in which conversations are circulating right now. Because as I was crossing the border, I drove from Canada through the Washington State crossing. And the border guard asked me a lot about monkeypox, actually. Which is really interesting because, you know, the first question is, you know, what do you do? And then, you know, where are you going, et cetera. And then eventually it gets to the point where I'm saying I was studying it at Oxford and then on vaccines. And I have a long conversation about monkeypox vaccine at the border with this border guard. So it's definitely the conversations that are coming up right now, at least. And it's interesting as a historian of, of vaccines, most of my research is on the smallpox vaccine specifically, of course, it's the one we've had for the longest time. And that's now suddenly back into the conversations over and over again. So I'm seeing it pop up here and there. There was a funny conversation one of the professors at Princeton once told me, which is when he would fly and someone would ask him what he did. He always told them that he was a high school math teacher because he would never get a single follow-up question. 
because if you told them he was a historian, they would always have long, in-depth conversations, usually about World War II and how much they like studying World War II. Now, probably with a border guard, you don't want to lie to them and tell them a fake job. But I always think about this when, you know, you say you're a historian. People always do want to actually chat with you, which is cool. But in any case, let's put that aside and kind of open with, you know, an opening question. Now, I think most people know what a vaccine is, right? In the sense of that they've probably had them over the course of their life, or probably most of the people listening to this podcast have. But can you give us maybe a extremely short, brief history of vaccines so that we can set the scene for everyone? Yeah, so I guess we should probably start with a definition of what a vaccine is. And just a broad basic definition would be that a vaccine is an agent which generates immunity to a disease. And a full stop there. And historically, this is done usually through the introduction of a weakened or killed form of a disease, which was then introduced into the body and the body would fight that off. And this would train the immune system in some way to then identify and fight off a more potent or deadly form of that disease later. This created immunity. And for much of history, the term vaccination has referred to only one specific vaccine, which is the vaccine to prevent smallpox. And that's where the term vaccination itself comes from. Smallpox itself was a very deadly disease. It had about a 30% mortality rate. And most stories kind of begin with vaccination, beginning with an Englishman called Edward Jenner. But I do like to say that most of the time, this origin story of Edward Jenner maybe isn't quite true. Of course, he's the first to create vaccination, but inoculation practices existed much earlier than that. And I like to point to the fact that they're not a Western invention. They existed much earlier in other areas of the world. And it should be recognized that, you know, this isn't a Western invention, but there's evidence of inoculation happening in China. And the Chinese emperor King survived a case of smallpox and he supported inoculation of his children. In Africa, inoculation practices were happening. And there's evidence that an enslaved man named Osimius brought inoculation or variolation from Africa to America. And that in Turkey, it occurred as well. So there's a lot of this earlier forms of it. And then eventually, a man named Edward Jenner would hear about it from other sources. And then specifically, his invention was the creation of taking cowpox, so a different type of disease, to treat smallpox or to inoculate against smallpox specifically, sorry, not to treat it. And so that's what the term vaccination comes from. It's Latin is vacca for cow using cowpox to treat or to prevent smallpox as a, a vaccination strategy. So just to like give it a bit of a, a little bit more nuanced origin story there. And then of course it quite quickly spread as a practice. It eradicated the other practices of inoculation, which was using smallpox to prevent smallpox. And it moved to North America and it was indoctrinated into laws and specifically mandatory vaccination laws that occurred through much of the 1800s across North America, across Europe, and has been used kind of ever since. So that's early origin of vaccination itself. And since then, we've created a number of different vaccines. In the late 1800s, we had rabies vaccine come out, some early cholera and plague and typhoid vaccines, followed by yellow fever, then BCG for tuberculosis, then diphtheria, pertussis, et cetera. By the 1950s, we have polio, rubella by the 1960s, mumps and measles as well. And then today, of course, we have a number of different developments underway for different vaccines. Now, do these vaccines change over time? So, for example, I mean, I know the polio vaccine has changed over time, but do other vaccines as well, or are they more or less the same? So vaccine technology has changed significantly since Edward Jenner first began his kind of experiments, of course. But the biggest moment of change in vaccine history is really the adoption of germ theory in the later 1800s, when vaccines became a lot safer. So if you can imagine getting a vaccination before around 1870, you're often getting a vaccine from someone else's arm. So it was pulled from a scab on their arm. And then that pus was inserted into your arm. This is called arm to arm vaccination. Then after germ theory was discovered, it was kind of recognized that there could be contaminant bacteria that happens, of course, during this process. And so we started to glycerate to sterilize more or less the vaccines as we went ahead. But then technology, of course, continues to grow. And today you see that the most important changes are often safety related. You see the discontinuation of certain vaccines in favor of other ones that happened with polio. When polio was first developed, it had an oral and an injected version. We've discontinued the oral because the injected version is just safer. So we use the safer version instead. So there's lots of changes that happen. They're usually related to safety concerns, which are always addressed. And 
actively looked at. And that leads to kind of the discontinuation of certain vaccines. For instance, BCG, again, was another vaccine that we've discontinued over time as well. And early on during COVID, there was a lot of talk about how the mRNA vaccines are going to change everything and change the way we think about and use vaccines. Is this still how vaccines are being thought of or has this changed and maybe it was just like a, a fancy PR move at the beginning of COVID? We'll say that I'm specifically not an expert on mRNA vaccines, but I mean, during the conversations, there definitely is an interest in a new type of technology for vaccines. Um, the way that you could prevent a disease being about, you know, this new application of mRNA, which mRNA technology has existed since the 80s, but being applied to a vaccine was kind of the new aspect of it. I can't speak to where it's going to go and how often we'll utilize this type of technology in future vaccines. I do know that in a lot of the conversations that are happening online, usually in the kind of anti-vaccination forums that I follow, you're seeing a lot of people who kind of claim this, this need for the traditional style of the vaccine, this new MRA technology being in their mind too dangerous. We have to stick to that traditional killed virus vaccine version, which in itself, you know, has changed a hundred different times since the sixties when we first uh, utilized it in polio. But it's interesting to see those conversation changes. So you mentioned anti-vaccination forums that you follow, which I will not be poking in, but thanks for doing that for various reasons. But obviously, anti-vaccination ideas aren't new, right? I mean, this is some of the focus of your work. So maybe you can also tell us as a second kind of setting the groundwork question, when do they first come up as a group of people, as ideas? I mean, which of those is it? Is it both, perhaps? And how have people noticed them as a field of study, I guess we could say? Yeah, so it's, I think, a really kind of good moment then to define what anti-vaccinationism is. Because in the literature, you see, you know, there's the modern conversations about anti-vaccination, then there's the way that the media portrays anti-vaccination, then there's a historical study of kind of anti-vaccination movements. Um, but there is, of course, a really big difference between anti-vaccination and what we would say would be vaccine hesitancy. So if someone's referring to vaccine hesitancy, they're simply referring to kind of fear, distrust, or concern about getting a vaccine. That does not necessarily imply that someone is against vaccination or will choose to not get vaccinated. Anti-vaccination, however, on the other hand, is very specifically referring to the purposeful spread of provocative content and the attempt to influence people against vaccination. So anti-vaccination is about the coordination aspect of it, the activism against vaccination specifically. And that in my study has been a really interesting focus. So you can find very interesting cases of anti-vaccination movements occurring throughout the past. And they have occurred in different forms, literally since the beginning of vaccinations existing, but especially in tandem with the implementation of mandatory vaccination policy, because mandatory policy always gives kind of a power to the resistance to it. So in the early 1800s, there was anti-vaccination movements, but ironically about doctors who previously had been doing the former versions of inoculation, when vaccination, the new technology became the standard, they were against it because it kind of pushed them out of their area of their job, more or less the way they made money. And then in the 1853 and the 1870s, in Britain, you saw the passing of specific mandatory vaccination laws, which often targeted the lower classes or the working classes of Britain. And that led to very organized anti-vaccination movements against specifically these mandatory policies, mandatory laws. And then since then, you saw anti-vaccination movements arise in a number of different contexts, usually in response to increased vaccination moments. In 1900s, 1905, there was kind of a big wave of it across North America. You saw it again in 1919 across a lot of different locations in North America, kind of small pockets in the 1930s. And then post-Second World War was when the conversation for anti-vaccination really shifted away from simply protesting smallpox vaccination, which is what original anti-vaccination movements were about, to then protesting other types of vaccines for the first time, specifically DTaP vaccine, the diphtheria, tetanus, and pertussis and especially the pertussis component. And then, of course, the more recent wave of the protesting is MMR vaccination. So those are kind of newer conversations added to anti-vax. But throughout the whole moment, these are just like organized movements pushing back against moments of increased vaccination and usually in response to kind of popular conversations at the time. Okay, so what type of themes come up usually when people who refuse or reject vaccinations present their ideas? Yeah, so I think this is what actually got me so interested in this topic is that in my own research, 
I was looking at vaccination and moments of vaccination policy implementation always kind of had these moments of resistance. What was really fascinating is the way in which there was a lot of consistency in arguments over time. So from 130 years ago to today, you kind of saw the same form of argument in anti-vaccination movements. So you kind of had four main things that were brought forward. There was always an effort to minimize the threat of a disease, saying that, for instance, smallpox isn't so bad, that it's really not that harmful, that it's more harmful, for instance, to the economy if you stop people from coming to the city. So kind of like conversations like that. So you're seeing a lot of conversations about the economy as well in historic anti-vaccination movements, which is rings quite similar with our COVID ones. You saw also a claim that the vaccine was more harmful than disease or was just simply useless. So kind of this negation of the effects of the vaccine. You saw a third, the hint of a conspiracy of some sort. So if this policy was being implemented, there must be some sort of darker kind of reason for it. Historically, they would argue that doctors wanted to make money off of it or that there is you know, a need for government control of the body. And then fourthly, often an appeal to a separate authority or personal experiences quite a bit. So kind of like an alternative narrative in some ways. So you saw those four formats of the arguments. They just changed over time. So they would argue that smallpox vaccine in 1900 anti-vaccinations would argue that smallpox vaccine caused tuberculosis or that it caused other types of syphilis specific. So they kind of argued that. And now you're seeing that, you know, anti-vaccinations are arguing that MMR is causing autism, et cetera. So you see this kind of same form repeated over and over again. And so what was really interesting to me is, well, if we've changed the technology of vaccination significantly in 130 years, why have we not changed the form of anti-vaccination arguments? And that's usually because of, in my experience, cultural factors or social factors. So then that naturally makes me ask, what are those? And are there any differences that come in and out? I mean, I know Lee and I have done research on different diseases across time and space, and there are definitely some themes that ring true, but they're always, as you say, cultural specific differences to different societies. So I'd be curious what those are as well. Yes, I guess one of the best examples from history would be the 1885 anti-vaccination riots in Montreal City that occurred. And it's a moment in history when Montreal is deeply divided as a city between the French and English populations. English tend to hold more power. They're mostly the city council members. Most of the doctors or physicians were English. And then there was a kind of poor, impoverished French-speaking working class that existed. And when a smallpox epidemic hit, of course, it hit mostly the poor areas of the city, which meant that disproportionately, the poor areas were experiencing the epidemic, but also experiencing the interventions against it. So public vaccinationists went door to door, checking to see if people were vaccinated, removing children if they had smallpox from their families and taking them to the isolation hospitals, which caused lots of frustration, especially for a parent. You can imagine your child being taken away to isolation hospitals meant that you might never see them again. That was it. So you can see how these kind of social inequities already kind of display an aspect of the way in which public health policy was implemented. And then, of course, the working French working class organized the protest against it. And they organized more or less. It was kind of like a bit of a riot. It didn't necessarily have that much organization to it. But there was first organized public meetings and then eventually kind of riots happened through the city in response to that. There was also the political context to the ongoing trial of Louis Riel at the time, too. So there was a, some more political divides, too. So that's a really good example of how not just disease impacts people equally, but also so does interventions. And that leads to this kind of resistance movement that happened. Right. And I think that maybe to continue from that case study, we could look at the other case study that I mentioned earlier, which is much more recent. So maybe we can start drawing connections there. But I'm talking about the most famous case of anti-vaccination that I know, pre-COVID at least, which is, of course, Andrew Wakefield and the false connection, published connection, actually, between the MMR vaccines and autism. So maybe can you lay out what happened there? And then we'll start drawing connections. Yes, I think Wakefield, he's really well known and in, in anyone who talks about vaccinations today, I feel like his status continues to grow because we keep talking about him over and over again. It'd be nice if he could just disappear from the conversations, but he's a discredited physician and academic from Britain, and today a leading anti-vaccination activist, one of the more vocal ones specifically in the United States. And his journey into the spotlight kind of was because he led a research group that published a research paper in 1998 claiming an association between the administration of the MMR vaccine and the development of something he called autistic enterocolitis, which was kind of like inflammation of the bowel. 
and autism. This caused a number of subsequent investigations, all of which failed to find a similar link that he claimed existed. The original paper was eventually found to be fraudulent. It had troubling conflict of interest in its funding as well as its practice, and Wakefield himself would continue to try and publish papers along these lines and was eventually struck from the medical register in the UK and discredited as a physician and a researcher. So that's kind of the origin story of that. But I think Wakefield falls into this kind of category of different types of anti-vaccinationists that exist throughout history. So we have those moments of like coordinated movements where people get together and gather and protest throughout history, like we saw in 1885 in Montreal. But there's always quite often that individual who is the vocal face of a movement. And Wakefield really serves to fit that purpose in, in more modern movements that it's quite a few, actually, there's about 12 anti-vaccinationists that are kind of the vocal faces of anti-vaccinationism in North America. But it, more recent studies have found that like almost all of anti-vaccination content comes from just 12 people and is amplified through these online ways of sharing information. And historically, we saw similar cases. So in 1885 in Montreal, there was one doctor who was a French doctor who was the kind of individual who used his own types of social media to promote anti-vaccinationists and organize those riots. His name was Joseph Emery Coderre. And Coderre focused on publishing images of children that had kind of reactions to their smallpox vaccine on their arms. So using kind of scare tactics. I kind of call them white knights in my research because there's a number of individuals like this who see that there's already a concern or division in society and then use it and exploit it for their own kind of, I want to say, spotlight or ability to become the face of a movement. And it's a lot easier to do that when you're a lone wolf standing out against, you know, what is considered to be common accepted knowledge and scientific consensus. So it's kind of easier for those individuals who want that spotlight to make a name for themselves through these types of movements. But maybe to look back at the Wakefield context, so, and why did he receive so much attention? As you said earlier, it's not that the MMR vaccine was new or anything. Autism was a known condition as well. So in what happened that his ideas got so much traction? I mean, yeah, both the actual finding, which was fraudulent, as you noted, but also the backlash against him actually, as you also noted, just made him stronger, right? And people continue to refer to his ideas. I mean, I think the best example for the that I know is of Ben Carson, right? The Republican presidential candidate in, was that like 2016, I think, who went on a presidential debate and, and said explicitly that vaccines cause autism. So do you want to specifically say this area isn't my area of expertise because it's not that historical, 1998. <laughs> but I have listened to quite a few interesting, actually, there's a really good podcast about this specific case. But I think most of the conversations tend to revolve around the way in which we understand autism evolving just in general in the 90s, in that it was finally getting diagnosed quite often when a lot of people individually or originally wouldn't have been diagnosed. It seemed in the 1990s that there was an increase in autism because we were finally defining it. We were finally giving people the treatment they needed, giving the funding support for it. And then that kind of led to this perception that it was on the rise in some way. I mean, it's a large spectrum, but lots of individuals have autism, which there's nothing wrong with in any way, shape or form. So I don't like, he is a developmental disorder, but that's the term that was used quite a bit. And there was this bit of a scare about it and kind of a pointing to the need for a cause in some way to exist. And, and Wayfield kind of was capitalizing on that fear. So that was interesting what you kind of said about what you called white knight individuals. So I am guess I'm curious, how do people become amenable to some of these ideas, right? If it's just a single person kind of spreading them, how do people pick up these ideas? How do they pass them along? I mean, you mentioned online forums, which is obviously a thing of the last 20 years, but maybe before that, how did people learn about these things and presumably pass them along? Yeah. So actually in my research, I talk a little bit about a kind of counterculture language in some form that existed in anti-vaccination movements for much of history, which is that you see these arguments repeated over and over again, but there's certain ways of speaking that were a signifier. If you wanted to show that you were part of the anti-vaccination camp in some way, you would use certain types of languages. So you'd say that vaccines were causing blood poisoning. That was a very common term in the early 1900s, for instance, or that it was a fetish of some sort. That was another term quite often used by anti-vaccinations, that the, the vaccine was a fetish of doctors. It was a, a fetish to use it. And the language itself became kind of a signifier of being part of this community. And I think we see that quite a bit in modern anti-vaccination movements as well, which is really interesting to see the kind of the language that develops is almost like a signifier that you're part of this community. 
I, I spent far too much time trolling through <laughs> de-vaccination forums during the pandemic and noticing that there was this fear that anti-vaccination conversations were being, of course, pulled off of Facebook and Twitter. And so a lot of anti-vaccination posters developed new forms of language, specifically using emojis instead of vaccination. You'd see them, you know, have an X, which would be like two swords crossed, the emoji that they would use there. And that became a signifier that they were trying not to get caught by, you know, the people who are monitoring the languages on the algorithms. And so they would put in emojis to say things. And sometimes it gets to the point where they just have like the head exploding and, and just have a V in front of it. And that was vaccination. It became the term for vaccine in a lot of online forums. So you see this kind of like language itself become a signifier of inclusion within a community. And it's changed a little bit now since most anti-vaccination individuals have moved on to Telegram off of Facebook and Twitter. So there's been a mass movement elsewhere. And then, of course, with the more intense conspiracy theories that happened with the QAnon community and the kind of Donald Trump coming back as a, supposed to take over the presidency that kind of got mixed into it in these kind of vaccine, the new world order scare conversations. So then it became far more conspiratorial in the language that was used. Can I ask just one question out of curiosity? How long did it take you to figure out the emoji shorthand that or other things? I mean, were you just staring at it? I mean, presumably you couldn't Google the answers to these, although maybe you could. So I'm just kind of curious how you figured this out. Well, luckily, most people are very helpful because they want you to join the movement. So they quite often would post like the head exploding emoji and then right below it say, that's code, just so you know, for vaccine. <laughs> so they would probably get picked uh, anyway, but, you know, it would be really interesting. There'd be a few people very helpfully explaining the new language too. And then it would, you know, kind of evolve from there. It reminds me of some of the discussions of the dumbest spies that are out there where you like, they get caught and you're just like, yeah, you told me exactly what you were doing. So I actually have a few questions about your experiences on anti-vaxxer forums during the pandemic and so on. But before we go back to that, looking back, historically speaking, what makes an individual, let's say, right, decide to lead this anti-vaccination campaign or organization or something like that, right? Do these people share certain characteristics, I mean, ethnicity, age, gender, race, class, or are they just like random from any part of society? And of course, I think maybe less so in the present, probably more so in the past, communication was much more expensive, right? So if you wanted to reach broader audiences, you had to pay, I am assuming. So how did that factor in, if at all? So there's definitely shared characteristics amongst individuals who like to lead anti-vaccination movements throughout history, and they tend to be from fairly privileged backgrounds. I mean, it's not that hard of a guess to say that most of them are white and male and usually have, say, 40s or higher age group. They usually have felt ostracized from their own communities in some way. So there's a good example of Dr. Alexander Ross in Canada. He led anti-vaccination movements both in Montreal and in Toronto. And then he moved to the United States to teach at a medical college before he passed away in the late 1800s. And he saw himself as a reformer personality, and he thought he was the liberator. He worked, in fact, as an abolitionist in America for a long time during the mid-1800s. Uh, and he saw his role in society to be to liberate, to speak for the people who didn't have a voice. And he wanted to be that voice. So he definitely had a solidly large ego. He wrote a whole song about his role in liberation in lots of ways. He published lots of books and a number of biographies as well about his life. But he also definitely believed he was fighting for people's rights. And a lot of individuals within the anti-vaccination movements tend to see themselves as the voice of those who can't be heard, if you will, or these liberators in some way. So they tend to be anti-establishment as well, personalities in general, people who kind of fight against establishment in forms. They also tend to reject germ theory, which is a, an interesting one. So that kind of became the signifier. So they tend to belong to alternative medical practices of some way, such as homeopathy, naturopathy, kind of more holistic approaches to medicine and these alternative medical practices. The way that kind of you define someone belonging to one of the alternative medical versus one of the mainstream medical was whether or not they accepted germ theory. And Ross himself rejected it. He thought that disease was caused by the environment that you were in, whether or not you got enough exercise and whether or not you just let your body naturally heal, as well as kind of he was against any sort of drugs and any sort of like interventions surgically as well. So Kona was called drugless and and bloodless healers as well. So those kind of people had these traits quite often. I think you see a, definitely in the modern sense, kind of a revitalization, especially in the form of Wakefield. He fits a lot of those 
those individuals. He's feel, felt ostracized by his own community, of course, as a physician and researcher. He's a very vocal white man from Britain who has quite a privileged background. And he is now speaking like he's trying to liberate the individuals he sees that he's speaking for and against, you know, a tyrannical type of law, vaccine mandates of some sort. Okay. So listening to what you're saying, it also seems that many of these people are medical practitioners, broadly speaking. So people from the medical establishment or, or maybe that were trained by the medical establishment. So that's one thing. The other thing is that if I remember correctly, and I think you mentioned this as well, with regards to Wakefield, there seemed to be at least an implication that he was supposed to make money off of these ideas. But that's not something that you mentioned with regards to the earlier anti-vaccination people. They they seem to be much more like individuals on their own crusades trying to do what they thought was good, maybe misled, or maybe they misunderstood the, the situation. But broadly speaking, it seems that their ideals were positive, thinking about like a broader society, so on. They definitely made money <laughs> off of those ideas. Um, Ross himself made a very thriving medical practice. He sold lots of pamphlets himself. They all had a, a financial stake in anti-vaccination as well, and especially as alternative medical practitioners in some form, adhering to kind of like non-mainstream medicine, especially as medicine starts to tighten its restrictions on who can practice throughout the early 1900s. You see that a lot of those medical practitioners who wouldn't fit the traditional ability to practice as a doctor, for instance, their business is being taken away. You know, they're being pulled out of the medical marketplace. So a patient, if they have cancer, should go see a surgeon and get a tumor removed instead of going to see a massage therapist to get that massaged instead, which was, for instance, the case. But there was this one interesting individual in Vancouver who had a massage practice and he tried to treat cancer and tumor growth with massage. And so he was no longer allowed to practice medicine because it was a very dangerous thing for that to exist and for tumors to not be treated for a long period of time. And as that happened, you know, that affects their actual financial income in a large, large sense of those terms. I won't say that they were only altruistic in their motivations. I say they claim altruism in their conversations, but they definitely had financial benefits. So some of this brings up a question maybe some of our audience has, or that they're thinking, or other people have thought, which is how do you respond to some of these ideas that people are spreading? And presumably, you know, on the one hand, you might say, you're super pro-vaccine, for lack of a better term, you would say all these people are just dumb rubes who don't know what they're doing and they don't believe in science. So too bad for them to an extent, right? That might be a very heavy handed response, hopefully not that many people, but that's probably some portion of the population might think about that. So what are some ways in which people have responded that aren't just writing off huge segments of the population for being kind of dumb. So I think this is when we get into the conversation about what is anti-vaccination versus vaccine hesitancy. And anti-vaccination has historically always been a small amount of individuals who are having conversations about whether or not they should or should not get vaccines. Individuals who have questions, concerns, those are often quite legitimate. They're usually based on social factors. And they often come from populations that have very good reasons to distrust authority. In Canada, there's been a lot of cases of vaccine research being done on Indigenous populations with or without consent for much of history. Of course, there's a large history of medical abuse of Black populations in America. And there's lots of really good questions to ask. And I would personally always say that it's always good to ask about any medical procedure and to question it before you agree to it. And anti-vaccinationism is a kind of a social movement that really sits, although it seems so vocal and loud, that's usually because it's kind of promoted by these people who have the ability to put their voice out in society and being heard. Those leaders come from privileged positions. And while they may think they're speaking for individuals who have real concerns, those individuals who have real concerns, their voices are often not heard in these conversations. And they are the ones that should be talked to and their concerns should be addressed and often addressing concerns about vaccines is actually addressing about healthcare and equity in general. And that's usually the first and foremost, I would say. So I would kind of honestly ignore the anti-vaccinationists as the main conversation. It's about health inequity and access to a doctor you trust, access to a vaccine at a time that is convenient for you when you don't have to take time off work, locations of where vaccinations are given if they're close to your home. You know, there's large areas of Canada, for instance, where people can barely see a doctor because of the, just the space and location of where healthcare is given comparatively to some of the city centers. So Healthcare inequity is the most important conversation. And I think that that would be the best way to address it. 
And if we look at things from a Canadian perspective, would the state agree with what you said? So would the state just kind of ignore the anti-vaxxers and try to communicate why vaccines are something that citizens or residents in Canada should take? Or, or do they actually engage the anti-vaccination people? It varies quite significantly across most areas in Canada. There's a lot of research in the modern medical research kind of about policy and the effectiveness of just repeating the same thing over and over again about safety and vaccines tends to find it quite ineffective at addressing concerns about vaccination. So there's this really interesting paper in 2018 in health psychology that talked about the psychological roots of anti-vaccination attitudes and more or less showed that individuals who reject vaccination are doing it because of personal reasons rather than just not understanding the science, if you will. And that more studies have been done saying, okay, if we give more science, if we give more explanations, more evidence, can we change people's minds? And almost every study has found that it does very little to change people's actual attitudes towards vaccination. But it's when you address the individual qualities of equity and just access concerns, that's when you have more trust in an establishment and therefore more trust in the things that they're providing as healthcare, specifically vaccines. So. One thing that I think, you know, I'm curious about is whether or not you think responses to COVID vaccinations, maybe again, we'll stay with Canada, have been good, bad, somewhere in between, you know, and how those have been done. I know Lee is a big proponent, for example, of governments putting out TikTok messages to get people vaccinated. That's something he's been very vocal about on this podcast. So maybe has that been done, if you know, and were there ways that worked or didn't work? Well, I haven't paid attention to my TikTok videos on vaccination. They clearly didn't make it into the anti-vax forums that I was following. But as far as the different governmental responses go, I'd say that there's some things that were well done. And there's some things, of course, that could have improved. The huge drain and, and just overall overwhelming aspects that most healthcare systems in the UK, the NHS, which is overwhelmed, and underfunded is a big one. Absolutely, that could have been far more funded. And just in general, staffing and kind of the funding that goes into a lot of these policies could have been higher. In Canada, we saw, again, our healthcare system got quite overwhelmed as well, but not to the same extent, but they kind of went through, we tend to have responsive policies. So when something bad's going wrong, we try to patch it up rather than planning for it in advance. And I will say that from history, we can tell that every single time we have a moment of increased vaccination, we have an anti-vaccination movement. So policy should expect that and plan for that as well. I think that's a, a kind of something to keep in mind going forward. But one thing that we really lacked quite a bit in this pandemic was consultation with local communities and some sort of kind of collaborative planning. And that has historically always been one of the best ways to discuss healthcare policy. If you're going to implement it amongst a community, you know, you talk with the community leaders And, you know, have the community on board with that and let them and their concerns and ideas be heard in those conversations. And that's what the article that we published about post-normal approaches are, is it really platforms the community voices and community leaders. And that is a much better approach than this kind of top-down enforcement strategy, which just often aggravates already existing issues within society and then creates a really good springboard for those resistance movements because they can say, well, why are we having this kind of top-down being forced to do thing approach rather than really being part of that conversation ourselves. So in Canada, was this a learning process? That is to say, the government begin without really knowing what to do at the beginning, but did they learn during COVID to start and reach out to these different communities? Because that's what happened in Israel. At the beginning, there was very little communication from the government with these specific communities, and it was basically just forcing everyone first to self-quarantine and eventually to get the vaccine. But over time, I think they realized that, especially the marginalized communities in Israel, needed better communication from the government, and they did that. And I think eventually that was pretty successful. I think they also did something similar in the United States. Merle might know a bit more about this. But how are things in Canada? So from my memory and what you hear reported and discussed within the different communities I work with, there was a concentrated effort to work more closely with Indigenous communities in Canada, specifically, about vaccine hesitancy and concerns, because there were quite a few. And as I mentioned, Canada has a long history of experimenting medically on its Indigenous populations. So that has always been a big conversation, whether or not this vaccination strategy was actually just a way to continue eradicating Indigenous peoples, which Canada has this long history of doing. So that was a big concern that 
I think policy originally ignored. And then a few different researchers at different universities, especially in Alberta, there was an effort to work with local indigenous communities and especially indigenous elders to talk about vaccine strategies. But I don't think those same approaches were implemented across many of the immigrant groups across Canada, which also have their own concerns. And so I would say that there is this kind of hyper-focus in some areas of Canada to address those issues and work closely with communities and whether or not it was successful across all the different indigenous communities is, you know, of course not. There was different ways it was done in Alberta compared to in Ontario, um, compared to BC, but definitely there was an approach in some forms and then kind of a neglect in others of different communities that aren't really part of the national conversations as frequently, um, specifically immigrant populations, especially I think our Asian populations who experienced increased racism across Canada at the time there could have been a lot more done to work with Asian populations, specifically in Canada, to address healthcare inequities there and the continued racism that they were feeling. So as we near the end of this discussion, I did want to kind of talk to you very briefly about some of your quote-unquote non-formal academic work, which is, as a younger scholar, you've obviously published a number of op-eds and you run a podcast. So First, I'm just curious from a, you know, maybe somewhat personal perspective, how you got into that and also how people have responded to that within, you know, your faculty or whatever else it might be. So I do a lot of public engagement and I have to say that as a historian, that's the most rewarding stuff that I do. You get this kind of immediate response (laughs) compared to the dissertation which took however many years and I'm right now turning it into a book, which who knows will be out in two years, hopefully. But, you know, you don't get the same response when you say you're working on something for eight years. And after eight years, eventually someone tells you how what they think of it. But working with public engagement, you know, talking to people about important subjects that are relevant to them has been incredibly rewarding. I started doing it in my second year at Oxford with Uncomfortable Oxford with founding that. I founded it with one of my uh, fellow students at Oxford. And that was a largely in response to the Rhodes Must Fall movement that happened to bring down the statue of Cecil Rhodes at Oxford, as well as in South Africa at Cape Town University, where it was removed, but it was not removed at Oxford. And it kind of brought forward this idea, this thing that was happening at Oxford, which was that the scholars were doing a lot of really interesting research on decolonizing the institution. And then nobody was learning about it at all or learning any of the conversations that were happening amongst the scholars who were trying to do stuff. It showed you just this barrier between academic work and people. And we really wanted to to break that barrier down. So we started running walking tours where academics working on topics of inequality in history or legacies of empire, in my case, medicine, they were able to talk about their research with real people who came to Oxford and were interested in like learning about what was happening there. So we do have one history of medicine walking tour that does talk about anti-vaccination in the city because Oxford's a huge researcher institute for vaccines. So that's kind of where my research went into it. But um, there's a number of the topics we follow and a lot of academics who do that. It's really rewarding. And from your experience, are the people who show up to these things, are they members of the local community or are they tourists or are they people who come from further away and, and just happen to join in one of these walking tours? I mean, what's your sense? It's about one third, one third, one third. <laughs> we get local community members who are just interested in more like experience of their local histories and who often actually can't even go into a lot of the university buildings because the university buildings require like a swiping card to most of them. So even though they may be local to Oxford, there's a lot of the city center, especially the most beautiful historic areas that they simply cannot enter. So that's a big conversation locally. And then there's a lot of tourists who come to Oxford. Of course, it's it used to before COVID about 9 million tourists a year. So just lots of people who go for the fact that it's got a name, it's got a beautiful city center. They want to meet a researcher, but it's basically impossible to meet anybody studying at Oxford unless you you know, go on one of our tours, to be honest, it's really hard to see those researchers because they're really hard to access. And then there's a lot of like academics who are interested in also doing pop engagement or how it could be done, and who are members of different universities who come in just to see what this project is actually working on its own. Um, and one thing we kind of noticed was that quite often the conversations that happen on a tour, a lot of people who came in from especially tourist background or like local community background, they weren't already like researching this at the PhD level. A lot of times they didn't even know who Cecil Rhodes was and they didn't know that history there. So we actually put out a podcast separate from the one that I do for the project that was a basic introduction to the British Empire called A Very Short Introduction to the British Empire. And that was meant to kind of supplement when individuals don't have that background. So that way those conversations can be contextualized a little bit better. So that also is another aspect of that project. So 
just out of curiosity, how do you see all this kind of continuing as you just finished or about to finish kind of a PhD and maybe have to move elsewhere, you know, from Oxford? How do you want to move these ideas forward, you know, later in your career? So, and this really interesting in between being publicly facing and still wanting to maintain a little bit of a connection with academia, probably follow a little bit of the traditional apply for a postdoc, et cetera, kind of thing. But Uncomfortable Oxford just expanded to Cambridge. So we have Uncomfortable Cambridge now and we have plans for further expansions. So I think that what this has shown me is that there's a way to kind of be one step in and one step out of the academy. And I think that's a really happy meeting place for my career, which I hope will continue as we get older. Now, as I mentioned, my partner is in America and I've been looking into potentially doing postdocs in America. So maybe who knows, we'll have an uncomfortable Johns Hopkins at some point in the future. <laughs> so maybe one last thing before we conclude, I mean, in context of the previous episode we've had, did you get any negative pushback for any of that work? Any of the like public engagement work of, of uncomfortable or decolonizing? Did people react negatively to that at all? I think that... You have to be ready for that because absolutely you get negative from all sides. You get negative from people who think you're not doing enough. You get negative from people who think you're doing too much. The university originally, when we said it's called Uncomfortable Oxford, the trademark for the term Oxford, even though it's a city name, is actually owned by the University of Oxford. So when we first started, <laughs> we got a nice little letter from their lawyer saying, make sure that everybody knows you're an independent organization that is separate from the University of Oxford because we own that trademark and you can't be associated with us in any way, shape or form. Ironically, when Black Lives Matter spread in the UK, then suddenly the vice chancellor was talking about this uncomfortable Oxford project that they clearly wanted to claim as their own after having just said this is letter. But you get negativity from all forms, but you also get just so much positivity that I think that it's always worth it in the end. I get like a weird person sending me an email every once in a while that, you know, either wants to tell me to go back to Canada or wants to tell me that I shouldn't be talking about vaccines. I don't understand things, but you know, it's at the end of the day, it's always overwhelmingly positive, far more than it is negative. So I think on that overwhelmingly positive note, we can wrap up the episode. And I just wanted to thank you so much again for coming on. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This is really great to be part of. And it was nice to hear a little bit more about your guys' daily life as well. Great. Thanks so much, Paula. So I very much enjoyed that conversation, Lee. And maybe the first thing that came to mind was when she laid out four themes in anti-vaccination history, which just reminded me about kind of how I teach history of disease, which I think you're also going to teach soon, soonish, which is that there are themes in histories of disease and pandemics that are also somewhat timeless, but then you also have to think about the specific cultural societal arrangements and how those shape those reactions. Right. And I, I think in this context, one of the interesting questions for me is whether we, broadly speaking, as in humans, whether we learn from history and, and how exactly do we learn from history? So with regards to the, the anti-vaccination movements or, into, or people who hold those kinds of ideas, how aware are they of all the previous anti-vaccination movements that existed and the arguments that were made back then? So in a sense, are they reinventing the wheel or are they kind of like building on those ideas and just reviving them consciously? Well, maybe you should take my course, Lee, because we talk about whether or not anyone learns from history as a theme in the course, because that's a theme that constantly comes up during every pandemic, that we should have known something or we could know something. What I tend to think about as one of the answers to this is we like to think about learning from history, but that the social configurations are often quite different. And so you have to take those things and apply them in your present. Yeah, that's interesting. So the way I think about these things when I teach is more about how the present and past influence each other, right? So I wouldn't phrase it as learning from history. I would probably emphasize the ways in which we have the past in our mind when we think about 
in this case, a pandemic or react to a pandemic. And I think this actually ties into many of previous episodes that we've had, anything from pandemics in movies to pandemics in video games and so on, because those are also pandemics that we've experienced, right? It doesn't have to be a real pandemic. Reading about a pandemic, whether in a fictional or a non-fictional account is basically the same. Yeah, no, I think it also, as you say, goes the other way, which is, right, the history you write of a disease or a pandemic, or in this case, an anti-vax movement is going to be shaped by, obviously, your own present and how you think about those things. And it's kind of a full circle, or if you prefer, Lee, a feedback loop in terms of how people think and how they act. Yeah, feedback loops, those are great. But it sounds, I mean, listening to what Paula had to say earlier, let's put the anti-vaccination groups aside, but it didn't seem that broader society or the government or the state or whatever were actually learning all that much and how to deal with these ideas of anti-vaccination, for example. Well, I think that's where it then goes to social structures and how they function in any society and how they work, right? At least in a U.S. context, right? I'll just argue for that. At least how this vaccine was rolled out, regardless of which administration was in charge, right, Republicans or Democrats, it was kind of portrayed as a very top-down process, right? We're going to develop this vaccine through this, you know, Operation Warp Speed that's going to get this thing done and then rolled out magically to everywhere and it's all going to be perfect, right? For whatever reason, and I'm sure people have written good work on this, it was portrayed as a very centralized effort from the beginning, at least in the United States. And, you know, that obviously shaped how people thought about it and how they reacted. That's fair. I mean, that reminds me of the vaccine in in our favorite movie, Contagion, and the relatively naive way in which the vaccine is portrayed there. I mean, both produced extremely quickly, distributed extremely quickly, and there doesn't seem to be any problems with it. It just ends the pandemic and the movie, too. And so, yeah, that didn't work that way in reality. Yeah, I mean, I think if you want to keep using that movie, like, it also doesn't differentiate. Well, it doesn't really have any anti-vax people, but it doesn't differentiate to the key point I think Paul made during this interview, which is the difference between this very small anti-vax group and the much larger vaccine-hesitant group, which. I think we don't talk about, and as she laid out, there's many, many good reasons why people would be vaccine hesitant, right? Whether they're from a community that's, you know, had medical experiments literally done to them, right? Or they don't have access or whatever it might be. And in fact, that it's kind of the crazies, maybe because they have really good emoji game, who get all the publicity and the actual hard work of convincing people, my jokes about TikTok aside, that get underplayed consistently. I get the sense, Merle, that you're kind of jealous of the emoji work going on. I mean, your emoji game is definitely not part of that. Well, I will say, I do have, forgot what it's called on iPhones, the personalized emoji. So I have a personalized emoji for myself, which does change. So you know, Lee, that I grow a beard usually in the winter. And so I add a beard to my emoji for that. And for a little while, I think I had you know, a mask for my emoji when I was, you know, strongly trying to get people to mask. And maybe I should put a cowboy hat on my emoji now that I'm in Oklahoma. <laughs> well, if so, let me know. Yeah, I think that the last idea that I would want to reflect on is the notion of public engagement. And I think that maybe in the context of some of the previous episodes that we've had, we interviewed senior scholars, right? So late career people who've done a lot of work and, and engage with the public afterwards. That's maybe the model that was popular several decades ago. But I think maybe in the present, especially through all these alternative ways to communicate your ideas as a scholar with a broader public, you get ideas such as what Paula mentioned, right? Again, ways in which she can now have these walking tours and introduce people to the uncomfortable past of Oxford. Yeah, no, it's definitely a generational shift, to use an overused phrase, which is, you know, as you pointed out, right, that the classic academic path is you write a narrow monograph, and then you start broadening out till maybe at the end of your career, you're writing a history of Europe 500 to 1500, or something like that, right? 
and then you kind of do a little bit of op-ed writing or something like that about that topic. And now I think both because people want to and because people are recognizing the importance of things like Uncomfortable Oxford, that there is more wiggle room, for lack of a better term again, of when people can do this in their careers and their lives. And I just hope that the academy as a whole is more willing to bring that in, which I think it is. But again, I would like it to move faster, perhaps, than it maybe is. Yeah, it seems to me that this will take a lot of time, but uh, it's probably going to be us who are going to change this. We are going to be among the people who are going to change this. So before we do wrap up, Merle, I mean, you started teaching this year, your first year. I still haven't started teaching. I'm still building my syllabi. So do you have any hot teaching tips, like fresh out of the field of teaching? Fresh out of the field of teaching. Yeah, I think this podcast will transform a bit. Which again, we always talk about how our kids can listen to this podcast someday and learn about their antics. But perhaps the other thing is we ourselves can think about our own careers, depending on how long this podcast goes, as it goes from Lee's, you know, wonder years of being a postdoc to, you know, mid-career tenure track, maybe someday tenured faculty. Disillusioned tenured faculty, yeah. No, what I would say that I've done recently that seems to have worked quite a bit is definitely breaking up my lectures quite a bit into very manageable chunks of 10 or 15 minutes. And one thing that, again, I've stolen shamelessly from Jack Tanous, we'll give him a second shout out on this (laughs) podcast, is giving out a list of terms as a handout, you know, as Jack would say, because there's funny names in funny places. But also what I found is if you give out a handout with terms, that they will if nothing else, take notes on that, right? So that they have a piece of paper to write down stuff. And that's literally what they do in my class. As so you physically hand out a piece of paper, you still do that. Okay. Yeah. I post it online as well, but I found that some people will use it and copy and paste the terms into you know, their online notes. Some will just write on the piece of paper, right? And so yeah. that seems to work pretty well as an alternative. Do you have a test at the end? In one of the classes, I do. And the terms come that I'll take from the papers that I hand out. Yeah, yeah, of course. So the reason why I don't have a handout is because my lectures are not written. So I don't actually know when I'm going to finish each class. So I have, let's say, broad estimate of where I get to with the material. And sometimes I get there. Usually I probably get delayed by 10 or 15 minutes or so. So it's hard for me to kind of know exactly where I'm going to finish. Yeah, I mean, what I do is I type up notes in speaking form, you know, shorthand bullet points. I don't really read them ever. They're just reminders to myself with some information. And then what I actually do is I usually, because I'm, you know, an active person, I walk around the classrooms up and down aisles with the piece of paper rolled up in my hand, using it as like kind of a pointing mechanism more than anything else. Do you sit on tables? Yeah, I sit on tables in the back and I sit in tables in the front and, you know, this kind of stuff. What about yourself, Lee? Do you have one hot teaching tip you want to give us? Yeah, actually I do. So one of the successful things that I've discovered are cahoots. Do you know what a cahoot is? No, Lee. Tell me what a cahoot is. It's a way to quote unquote gamify your classroom, Merle. So you basically put up questions in advance. People connect to the game using either their phones or their computers. The question appears on the screen and they have, I think, like 20 seconds to answer. Like it's basically a multiple choice to answer whatever they think. The way I do this is that I give them questions about the material from last class and I do that at the beginning of each class. So it's actually pretty useful because it gets them thinking about what we did last time. If people are late, they don't lose all that much. And each time I've surveyed them, they've always been extremely positive about that. That's probably the most positive exercise that I've ever had given in any class. Huh. Maybe you'll have to show me how this is, because I always ask them at the beginning of the class what we did the previous class, and then we do a summary at the end. But they always seem to groan and be upset, even though they know it's coming. So maybe if I turn it into a game, you know, I'll be more popular. Yeah, Merle, you have to gamify the classroom again. And of course, of course, I have to mention here that whoever wins 
each week get some kind of bonus to their final grade. So in a class of uh, what like 80 people, like 10 of them would get bonuses. And sometimes some people do get extremely competitive about this. So they form like teams and work together and like, yeah. It's interesting to see that from my side. So that's my teaching tip. Do whatever you want with Emerald. And with that exchange of tips, we can wrap up this episode. So we'd like to thank our sponsors at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem for funding the podcast and our great team, the sound editor, Amitai Berlevi, and our webmaster, Verdra Kanati. Until next time, stay safe, keep masking indoors if rates are high, and send in your hot teaching tips for us to learn from. <laughs>